All right, and we are back in Exodus chapter 32, the second half. What better way to prepare for the Christmas season than to look at the great sin of Israel and the golden calf? Uh, What are their connections here? Well, there are some. We'll get there. Why are we here, though? We're here because we're just teaching right through Exodus. That's what we do. We open the book and we point to Christ, and we'll do that that again, Lord willing, this morning. Um, But even in Exodus chapters 32 through 34, this is probably the pivotal revelation of the glory of God in the Old Testament, I might suggest to that. And you get to really see what God's like. You get to hear it from His own mouth, so to speak. And it anticipates what will happen with Christ as He comes and shows us the glory of God in the Incarnation. And so we'll touch on that in the next couple weeks. But for now, by way of introduction, I want to point you to an article I came across. It was written for Forbes.com. It was written by Dr. Weinstein. And he suggested that in 2022, the year 2022, that this, to quote, had to be the worst apology ever given of that year. And it went like this, quote, I exceeded the scope of the consent, and I'm trying to make an effort to make it right. I'm taking responsibility, end quote. Now, perhaps that sounds okay, but Dr. Weinstein explains, he says, well, what's wrong with that? Nothing if the infraction were, say, speaking too long at a meeting. But those words were uttered by a funeral home director accused of stealing and selling body parts from cadavers instead of performing the scope of consent. He goes on to list in the article, Dr. Weinstein, three of the most common non-apology apologies that we most frequently hear, uh, but maybe have used. No comment there. But the first one, and it comes up so often, the, the, the best or worst, how do you want to say that? Non-apology apology goes like this. I'm sorry if you were offended. Of course, why is this such a bad apology? Because you're not actually apologizing for anything other than the, per- the other person being too sensitive. You're not owning anything of the problem. You're putting it all back on them. Here's the second one. The offender lamely observes, you know, mistakes were made. Well, Weinstein notes this problem. Using the passive voice shifts responsibility away from the person at the heart of the problem. You. And he's right. Or have you heard this one? Dare I say, have you used this one? I'm sorry, but the reason I did it was... Now, what's wrong with that as an apology? Well, you're instantly giving qualifications and justifications for why you did what you did, which means you're not actually sorry about it. Just naturally, we do this all the time. We minimize our culpability. We minimize our wrongs. To put the biblical word on it, what do we do? We minimize sin. We have a hard time owning up to them, that we're actually guilty before God, that we've done wrong and wronged others. As we turn to Exodus 32 again this morning, we're going to find Aaron, Moses' brother, And he's going to give us a clinic in the non-apology apology of what not to do. And in the end, though, we're going to see ourselves in the mirror. We see it just points out our sin nature, the real root of our spiritual problems. We fail to see sin in its proper light. We fail to see it like God does. And so that's the word this week and last as we consider this text, Exodus 32. This is a call to correct your view of sin. God's word's coming to correct your misunderstandings, to correct your warped perspective, and to bring you 
close to the truth. You need to see sin like God does. You need to see it like he does. You need to see it like he sees it. Because if you do, that's where you'll begin to actually rightly respond to it. But until you can reckon with sin as it actually is, you'll never rightly respond. Now we're going to see four of these right responses to a view of sin. And the first one is uncover sin's character. We talked about this last time in those first six verses. That is, if you're going to ever rightly respond to sin, you got to have a right view of it. you got to know what it's made of. What is sin? In other words, you need to see the sinfulness of sin. And the teaching tool for us, the mirror, to see that in this text is the great sin of Israel and making this great idol, this golden calf. We studied last time. What did this expose? It exposes that sin is distrust in God. It exposes that sin is... Clear disobedience to God's word. It exposes sin to be disloyalty to our God who has redeemed us and saved us. And furthermore, it exposes sin that it leads to depravity, throwing off more and more of God's word. But in view of this, what do we find also as we uncover sin's character? The next thing we see, though, is that God is fuming mad about sin. And this is a problem for us. Look at verse 10 of our text. Now, therefore, let me alone with them. Note that, okay? We're going to come back to that. And I may consume them in order that I may make, great, make a great nation of you, Moses. And yet, even in this, we're seeing there's still reason to have hope in God's character. That's a right response to an accurate view of sin. Now, wait, how does that work, Right? How do I have hope in a God who says, oh, by the way, let my wrath burn hot so I can wipe you out? Where is there hope in a God like that? Well, do you remember what we talked about? Remember this. If God really wanted to wipe out Israel then, guess what he would have done? That. And he wouldn't have told Moses about it. But he intentionally pulls Moses in, reveals his heart about the situation for the very purpose he knows this will move Moses to beg for their mercy, which is exactly what Moses does. And in response, God relents. Verse 14, And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on this people. God wanted Moses to cry out for mercy. Why? Because God's a merciful God. And he wanted to show mercy through a mediator. And the whole thing set up and played out just like God intended. All right, with that, though, we're not out of the woods yet, as they say. Because this text continues to unfold how serious sin really is. So even though he, God, relents from wiping them out, sin still has consequences. And this is the third right response to sin. You need to affirm sin's consequences. You need to understand that sin changes things. And for the worse, it should be punished. If you're going to have a correct view of sin, you've got to know it has. So instead of running from sin, the call is for us. We need to reckon with sin's consequences. Because here's the thing, and here's the, the prime chief consequence of our sin. It breaks relationships. Namely, it breaks your relationship with God. It fractures it. That's what sin does. That's its chief consequence. And this picture for us first as Moses is holding these Ten Commandments, these stone tablets in his hands, and now finally he's descending back down from the mountain, verses 15 and 16. And the tablets there are highlighted. He describes them in two verses, just basically telling us all about these tablets, that there's two of them, and they're written on the front and the back. 
Remember the scenario. Moses went up the mountain to go get all the instructions about the tabernacle. And then while he's gone for 40 days, Israel, what have they been up to? They've been up to no good. And they make this golden calf. And then God finds out about it. And that's what we talked about last time. But now Moses himself is coming down the mountain to go see, because God told him, go down the mountain and see what they're doing. And so now Moses is doing that. But as he goes, he's holding these two stone tablets in his hands. Now, we typically, at least I do, would think of the stone tablets and we see it portrayed like in movies or film or whatever. And then there are these two stone tablets and they have the Ten Commandments on them, usually about five and five or four and six on one in each one, as if you couldn't fit all the commandments on one tablet, so you had to make another one. No, that's not what this is about. Okay. In, when you make a covenant agreement back then, what you did was you made two copies of the same agreement. Why? So each party can take one. So you know what you were being held to. That's why there's two stone tablets. They had the Ten Commandments on each of them. Why? So that God remembers what he's called them to, and they would remember as the people what God is calling them to. In other words, one of the stone tablets is kind of like the receipt, the proof of purchase of their covenant relationship. What then do these stone tablets represent? They represent their very relationship with God. That's what they represent. They are the physical proof of that Spiritual reality. That's important to keep in mind. Because as Moses is coming down the mountain holding the tablets, he first encounters Joshua, who's farther up the mountain with Moses. Okay, And they are debating about, well, what's the sound that's taking place down below? Moses has inside intel from God. He knows what's happening. He clarifies that for Joshua. But to summarize now, we look at verse 19. For now, in verse 19, Moses holding the tablets is getting close enough to really see what's going on. And here it is. Exodus 32, 19. As soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. First thing I want you to notice, Moses' anger burned hot. Why is that important? Because the very words are used to describe guess whose anger also burned hot at the golden calf? God's. So God's response to sin and Moses' response to sin, they are the same. Explains for us what happens next at the end of verse 19. It says, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. I submit to you, this is not Moses' having a lack of self-control, just an outburst in anger, as if he was really upset and the only thing handy was the stone tablets, and so he was going to break those. That's not how this works at all. This was very intentional. This was very symbolic. And what is it symbolic of? Well, what do those stone tablets represent? It's their relationship with God. And so when he sees their sin, he throws down the, the stone tablets showing that their relationship with God is now what? Broken. They broke God's law, and so their relationship with God is now shattered. The covenant relationship is severed because of their sin. The picture of breaking the stone tablets, again, this is not done in a lack of self-controlled anger. It's symbolic. It's like, it's like a wife ripping off her wedding ring and throwing it at her husband. It's like grabbing the contract and you just rip it to shreds and throw it all around the room. 
The covenant's broken, it's fractured. The relationship's broke and sin was the wedge that went in and pushed the parties apart. In other words, Moses didn't break the tablets. They did when they broke the word of God. And that sin has created a separation. And as we talked about, it's even created an animosity, a holy animosity against them for their sin. This is what sin does. It puts a barrier between you and God. Now, I grant this is all very dynamic here. It's all symbolized here. But really, the same goes for you in your own relationship to God. Your sin that everyone in this room has, or at least that we've sinned, it's created a barrier between you and God. So we'll speak more about it. That means you need someone who can take away that barrier, who can take those sins out of the way, who can remove those wedges so, again, you can be reconciled at peace and not be judged. And there's only one way to do that, to be real clear. It's Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on the cross for sinners. By faith in him and him alone, you can be forgiven. His death alone can take away all those disobediences, those sins. So you can be made at peace with God. But you have to repent and come to him by faith. you got to beg him for mercy. That's where it begins. Now, okay, but if I've come to Christ, if I've come to faith, and my sins have been put away by the cross, are you then saying, well, I've been reconciled, but every time I sin, I break my relationship with God again? As if it's like, every time I sin, he loves me. Oh, he loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. No, that's not how this works, thankfully. Well, how does this work then? Does, it, does our sin not really do anything? Ah, you can read in the New Testament. You can grieve the Holy Spirit, can't you? Your prayers can be hindered. What is this talking about? How does this work? It is your sin still creating a barrier, a barrier of sorts, not like the barrier we're talking about here. But it is different. And what is it like? Just, it's a lot like your own family dynamics, frankly. So if your child sins against you, disobeys your command, no matter what your kid does or how bad he does, he's still your kid. You still love him. And that's the dynamic here that we're dealing with with God. No matter in your family, too, between a spouse, no matter how badly you sin against one another, you're still married, you're still family. And in the gospel, once you've been bought, once you've been purchased by the blood of Christ, once you've repented and you've been born again of the Holy Spirit, you can never undo that. Praise God. But if you sin against him and flaunt his commands or neglect your duties to him, you won't be enjoying the peace of his fellowship, will you? And just like with your wife, you might still be married to her, but when you sin against her and really offend her, are you surprised she's cold toward you? That's the consequence of sin. In the gospel, it might not sever you, but it will still, sin will still hinder you. So what's to be done about this? But confess it. Keep short accounts with God. Turn from it. Confess it. Get this. In the gospel, he won't hold a grudge. 
Actually, marvelously, he's promised to remember your sins no more. It's incredible. Or he's promised like this, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants to forgive you. He wants to be at peace. So stop staying in your sin and leaving the barrier there. Affirm sin's consequence and confess it. As we turn to the text, we start to see this unfold. What can put away this barrier? It's confession. You got to own up to what you did. You got to own up to what you did wrong. And Moses kicks that off right away by actually first, so here it looks like he's initiating repentance for them because he destroys the fruit of their sin. He destroys the golden calf, verse 20. And he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. What's the point of this? You're never putting that cow back together again. But then next, Moses moves to confession. And so he returns to his deputy. He left in charge, Aaron, his brother, and he just confronts him. But honestly, Moses does it kind of mercifully, I would say, in verse 21. He says this, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? As if to say, man, what did they do to you that you did this thing? So even though he's softly confronted his brother, Aaron doesn't take the mercy. Instead, what does he do? He doesn't take responsibility. He doesn't own his wrong. He just gives us a class act in making excuses and justifications, mainly to show us here's the way not to make a confession. And it's characterized by three things. What does Aaron do? First off, he minimizes the gravity of his sin. In short, what does he say about his sin? Eh, it's no big deal. Verse 22. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Don't get out so bent out of shape, bro. It's no big deal. Don't be so uptight. Don't be so, note that in verse 22, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Remember, not only did Moses' anger burn hot, but who else did? God's. But in our sin, we can't see how heinous, how dangerous, how horrible such disobediences are. Because you understand, it's just one little sin. One little sin can cost you your life. But not in Aaron's mind. Being angry about sins, blowing something small, way out of proportion. Next, he blames others. He makes excuses and blames others. Verse 22. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. In other words, it's not my fault, it's them. You know what they're like. They're set on evil. They're sinners to the core. Moses, you got to be realistic here. Sinners gonna sin. That's what we do. And what does that mean then? The implication is it can't be punished, it can't be disciplined, it can't be helped or blamed. It's not my fault, that's for sure. And finally, though, third, he gets around to explaining himself. And instead of coming clean, he tries to dodge all blame by creating this fantastical story. Code word for lies. Verse 23. For they said to me, 
Make us gods who should go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So I said, let any of you have gold, take it off. And so they gave it to me. Now it's interesting at this point. So far to pause there, he has almost gone word for words the way it's been described so far in the book of Exodus. That is, his story is true so far. But then all of a sudden, it's like almost he's getting up to telling you the truth, and then he's like, oh, we got to change gears. And here's his on-the-spot fabrication. So I got all that gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Wow! It's like it galloped right out before us. And of course, it's lies. No one believes this. Especially earlier, we saw in the text verse 4, he fashioned it with a tool. If anybody, Aaron knew every chisel mark, every curve, every mark on this idol. It just came out like that. As if God made it, perhaps. He's lying, and it's a bad one at that. It's a dodge. He's trying to find a way out from under his sin. And in the process, what is he doing? He's just digging himself deeper and deeper, deeper and into it. But can't we do the very same thing with our sin? Making excuses, blaming others. We even lie to ourselves, don't we? First of all, we minimize sin. We pretend it's no big deal. We're also prone to blame others for our sins and our failings. What do we do? We blame our environment. You know, so much of the psychological culture was blaming our upbringing. It's because of the way your parents raised you. We blame our circumstances. We blame, really, we try and put it anywhere else we can to try and escape the truth where the blame ultimately lies, right here with you. We flatter flatter ourselves thinking, I'm not that bad. I'm not so bad to do that thing that I just did. So there's got to be some other explanation. When this is telling you, no, you are worse than you can imagine. And related to that, we just lie to ourselves about our failings and to others. Why? We're afraid of getting caught. We think it'll make others upset, so we make up some story. We think it's going to lower their estimation of us, so we lie about it. We try and escape the blame. But get this, with God, you can never escape. No lie or excuse is going to work on him. So this is a call. Don't try and hide from sin's consequences. Because you can't. Finding peace with God begins with being honest about how you are not at peace with him. But you got to start there. Admit it. You are a sinner. To that then. Instead of trying to dodge our sin, as we go back to the text, we do well to turn, to repent, to recommit, to follow our God. And in effect, that's what we see with Moses next as we look to verses 25 and 26. He makes a call to the congregation. He says, who's going to cross back over and come on the Lord's side? Let's look at verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, to the derision of their enemies. This breaking loose means to throw off all restraint. And you notice Aaron's culpability is not missed in this whole scenario. 
It's such a moral catastrophe. They have given themselves over to such depravity. They are susceptible to an attack from their enemies. That's probably what is intended by this expression to the derision of their enemies. They've so given their over, themselves over to debauchery, an attacking army could come and just wipe them out. The situation's dire, and this induces drastic measures. Verse 26 now. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. It's a call to take sides with the Lord, to join the Lord's team. And actually, in this text, we see it's actually go join his army. The Lord wants you, right? Come. It's a call to take sides with God. And you understand, this is another way that sin just tries to deceive us. It tries to convince you, you don't really have to take sides. You can, as we say, ride the fence for a while. And maybe see where things shake out. Hence, I don't love sin. I can see some of its consequences, how bad it can be, but I just can't shut the door on it yet. I mean, I kind of like God pretty well, but I don't want to be so committed to Him. I'll stay neutral. No, by this call to come across to the line, what is He saying? There is no neutral. There is no no man's land. There is no riding the fence. You're on one side or the other. There's no middle ground. You're either for him or against him. And you might flatter yourself otherwise, but get this. If you're not for Christ, then you are for the devil, you are for selfishness, and you are for sin. There's no in between. It's not like a dimmer switch in your living room. It is on off. Whose side are you on? What will you do? Who is on the Lord's side? Which leads to that ultimate affirmation of sin's evil and necessary consequence. The right response to sin is to agree with God that it must be punished. So when the Levites rallied to Moses, you know, as he said, come to me, they're coming. They don't know what they're coming for. But here's the mission I want you to note this, that God gives them. Look at verse 27. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel. So it's Moses talking, but he's giving God's mission to them. Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Whoa. This suddenly got really serious, didn't it? It's one thing to say, hey, who is on God's side? Yeah! That means go kill your friends and your neighbors and family. Why? I don't know. And yet we're not told of any objection or hesitation from the Levites. They Rather, they obey. Look at verse 28. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. We understand just by the numbers executed here, just 3,000. This is just comprises the smallest fraction of the population of Israel at the time. This is hardly even 0.1 of 1% of Israel, this 3,000. This suggests to us that the Levites were not simply on a mission to just 
indiscriminately go with their swords through camp and slay everybody. But they were taking out those who persisted, unrepentant in their idolatrous disobedience. These are folks that were still committed and wished they had still the golden calf, the sacred cow. And for that, they're slaughtered. But the principle is really clear. Sin will not be normalized. It will not be tolerated in the people of the holy God. It must be condemned. That is the right consequence for sin. And we know it's the right one because afterward in verse 29, the sons of Levi, they're blessed for it. They're commended and awarded by God. Now, how does this play out for us? Okay. Because clearly it is not everybody strap on your sword or handgun and let's shoot all the sinners because then we'd all be dead. So how does this work? Remember old covenant Israel? Different story, right? They were given the sword. In the new covenant for the church, we don't have the sword, save the sword of the Spirit of God, the Word of God. But the principle is still the same. Sin cannot be tolerated among the people of God. And so instead of execution, it looks like excommunication. Removal of membership, those who persist in their sin. And sometimes that's what it's going to mean to say, I'm on the Lord's side. It's to tell somebody that you love dearly, maybe your own family member, let alone your own spiritual family, and to tell them, I'm going to stand with the Lord and you're standing against him. You need to turn from your sin. What does it mean to be on the Lord's side? Just very practically. This means you need to be willing to risk friendships. You need to be willing to risk comfortability at church to bring up the sin that you see in a brother's life. You got to be willing to risk that. Hence, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You should, you must, you got to do this for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the good of your brother's soul. But they may not like what I'm going to tell them. You're right, they might not. They might even hate me or shun me or reject me and give me the cold shoulder. You're right, they might. It's going to make things awkward between us when I get to church, and I know God doesn't want that. You're wrong about that part, but you're right about it's going to make things awkward. And if it hasn't yet, it will. But this is part of the call, the responsibility to say, I'm on the Lord's side. Helping the church walk in Christ-like holiness, helping your fellowship, helping the church members walk in repentance. We all need it. Again, that's why Jesus can charge just any member of the church, any part of the church family like this. Remember this, Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother, and that's what we're after. The name of Christ in holiness and the good of our brother. They don't like, they're not going to like what I'm going to say. They might not. But again, who is on the Lord's side? Is not the sin bad? Is not the sin evil? Is not the sin so dangerous? And is your Lord not holy? And is he not gracious to repenting sinners? Whose side are you on? The right side, God's side, affirms that sin is serious. 
It has consequences, and it must be dealt with for the good of Christ's name and for your brother. So we need to commit to risk as needed for Christ's name. Because we affirm sin's consequences. We also need to seek sin's covering. Verses 30 through 35. This is the fourth right response to a right view of sin. You know you need it covered. And that, that's pictured for us here by Moses as, despite the termination of the most obstinate offenders, Moses understands, as the saying goes, they're not out of the woods yet, and so they need a covering for their sins. Verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You've sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. You've sinned a great sin, and you need it to be atoned. You need it to be covered, is how this expression works in the Hebrew. You need it covered over so it's not seen anymore. Or it can also be talked about, it can be wiped away. But either way, it's gone such that the barrier is removed. It's not seen. It's not coming between you any longer. That's what atonement does. And Moses understands, again, despite God's stay, That things are dire. We gotta get the charges dropped. We gotta find atonement. And notice as he commits to go talk to the Lord about this, Moses' optimism about it is not really high, actually. Do you see that there again in verse 30? I will go up to the Lord and perhaps, perhaps I can make atonement. You know what perhaps means? What does perhaps mean? It means perhaps yes. It also means perhaps what? No, because you can't. We indulge in sin because we assume, we presume that whatever it is, whatever the consequences be, it won't be final, it won't be too serious, we can get out of that. I almost wanted to, you to underline that in your Bible. To that kind of thinking, Moses says, perhaps. Well, just perhaps, how might someone find or make atonement with a holy God like this? And Moses gives us the paradigm for what this looks like in verses 31 and 32. And it starts with something that's wholly opposite to the way Aaron's approach of blame shifting, excuses, and lies. No, what do you got to do? You got to first take responsibility for your evils. Verse 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't make some excuse. He just owns it. Yeah, they sinned big time. They've disobeyed you. They're worthy of death. And more than this, Moses even makes it expressly clear what they've done. Again, the words he notes at the end. They've made for themselves gods of gold. Why add this? Because we know that making the, the calf is the breaking of the first two commandments. But why tack on these specific words at the end? But they are taken almost verbatim from Exodus chapter 20, verse 23, where he gives this very command, you shall not make gods of gold. What's the point? Moses is putting the most specific biblical terms to their sins. There's no hedging here. There's no ambiguities here. Here's the sin, and it has a name. You're putting biblical words to it, so everybody's really clear about what's happened here. 
that there's a serious sin and it's been confessed. And that can feel very different than what often goes on when someone, you know, has offended somebody or sinned against somebody and you're trying to reconcile and you go up and you're like, hey, you know, I'm sorry about that and I'm sorry that it happened. We cool now? And you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. How am I supposed to forgive something that I don't even know what it is? That's because there's a failure to put biblical terms to it. And if we're failing to put biblical terms to whatever it is, like, like there's some issue between you and a brother and you're not willing to put biblical terms to what it is, maybe on the one hand, because it's not even sin. It's just some kind of conviction you have that's not biblical and you're holding that against other people. Well, if you can't find a biblical word for it, then it's not sin and really it shouldn't be between you then. But more often, when we're not willing to put a biblical term to it, do you know why? It's because we don't want to believe that it really is that bad. Because once you put a biblical word to it, once you can go, oh yeah, I disobeyed this verse, I disobeyed the word of God, things change, don't they? We're not dealing with preferences, we're not dealing with convictions, you're dealing with disobedience to the word of God. And we don't want to own it. Well, Moses owns it. They clearly disobeyed your clear word. And so what's to be done about it? Well, we talked about this. You need a covering. You need atonement. And Moses provides a clue how atonement, peace with God, the only way it can come. So now we look at verse 32. But now, God, if you will forgive their sin, and he doesn't even finish the statement. It's like, if you'll forgive their sin, then we're good. We don't even have to have this conversation. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. If you're going to forgive them, I think we're good and we can move along. But if you're not so inclined to clemency here, then just, just blot me out of your book. And to be clear, what he means by blot me out of your book, it isn't like go and mark out Moses' name in the book of Exodus that we don't see it again. He's saying, Block out my book from the list of the redeemed. Take me off the reser reservation and invitation list to heaven. And understand, Moses' motivation here isn't, well, if they can't come, I don't want to go either. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if they can't come because of their sin, let me die for them. Let me go to hell for them so you can let them go. He's offering himself as an atoning substitute. I will die for them. I'll go to hell for them. Just let them come in. Because Moses is already seeing this. He's already seen countless animals slain in attempts to make atonement, and he knows something's missing. Something's missing. Can these animals really take away sins? He knows the answer already. No, they can't. We need a better sacrifice. But he wonders, maybe I can be it. Might my blood cover their sin? And in the end, the answer from God is no. I will not accept your death for theirs there still needs to be just punishment. Look at verse 33. 
But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Ultimately, Moses' offer is rejected. I still got to deal with them. And so you have this truth that permeates Scripture, that individuals are held personally accountable, responsible for their sin. It's picked up so clearly in Ezekiel chapter 18. The soul who sins shall die. Okay. Well, does this mean that all Israel then, all these idolaters, they're just all doomed then? Oh, by the way, and all of us, sinners as well? Well, evidently not. Verse 34. He says, But now go, lead the people to the place about which I had spoken to you, this promised land, right? Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And apparently, even immediately so, read on the next verse, verse 35. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron had made. As we correlate this with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it seems that another 20,000 are laid low by God, judged. That's a lot more than 3,000, but even still, we're at just 1% of Israel's population. And again, I suspect that 1% represents those who were unrepentant, clinging to their idolatrous worship. They were part of that larger group that the Levites just couldn't get to yet, and so God settles it himself. But again, overall, this is only the smallest fraction of the whole congregation of the sinners. Most of them are spared. Furthermore, God's promises seem to be back on track. He's like, yes, I did make that promise. Yes, I am sending you to the promised land. That's grace. Where we started, God was posed to wipe them all off the face of the earth, save Moses. But now he's tolerating them. And why is he doing that? I think because of this. Because there was a faithful mediator who came and offered his life for them. And even though the Lord didn't take him up on the offer ultimately, it's so well illustrated what we need. Moses was attuned to this. We need a covering. We need an atonement. We need someone to die in our place. And God didn't accept Moses in exchange. And we know why. Because Moses himself was a sinner. He didn't sin with the golden calf, sure, but he was already a murderer. We saw that earlier on in the book of Exodus. And later on, he's going to disobey the clear command of God such that he can't even enter the promised land. You get this. A sinner cannot take the death of another sinner. Why? Because that sinner has to die for his own sins. So what do you need? You need a mediator who's like you, who's human, but actually has no sin. You have a clue who that is yet? The book of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, Jesus Christ, who's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Note this, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And why not? Because he had no sin. So what does that mean? He can then take yours and he can die in your place as a real substitute and sacrifice. So what, if he's done that, what does that mean? Your sin's paid. It's gone. It's atoned. It's covered. And it's fully satisfied the wrath of God for all your sins if you trust in him. 
Have you sought such a refuge under the blood of Christ? Is that true about you this morning? Stop minimizing your sin. Stop pretending it's not there, that you're better than you really are, that it's no big deal. Oh, sin is a big deal. Hell proves it it's, it's a big deal. Furthermore, the innocent Son of God dying on the cross proves sin is a really big deal to God. And yet he offers mercy. Mercy for you this morning. And there's only one covering for you. It's the blood of Christ. Now, if that is you, you've trusted in Christ, you're already him by faith, what can be said of us? Well, much the same. Be honest about your sin. Are you doing that? Are you looking your sin honestly square in the face and saying it what it is, calling it what it is, evil, sinful? Or do you excuse it, minimize it, lie about it, justify it? Because get this, because of the gospel, you don't need to run and hide anymore because of your sin. Because your Lord provided the way back. That's the whole point. He's the covering you need. John reminds us of this in his letter. He reminds us that you always have a place to go with your sin. In 1 John chapter 2. Now, just if you're not familiar with 1 John, it's a striking book. It is a black and white book. It's a book that's going to point out your sin and hit you pretty hard. And he starts with that. And he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And as you read through 1 John, you're like, you sure did. Because I'm really convicted. But then he adds this. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a mediator, a priest with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's our advocate. He's our substitute. He's the propitiation for our sins that satisfied all the wrath of God, not only for our sins, but for also the sins of the whole world, all that look to Christ. Until you can be honest about your sin and see how horrible it is, you will never appreciate what Christ has done for sinners like you. So what's the takeaway? See sin for what it really is. See it for the evil that it is. And so then see the abundance of God's grace to a sinner like you. Let's pray for this. Father, we need your mercy. Forgive us for taking sin as a light thing. We're so, we're so used to it. It's so common to us. That's no excuse. It just testifies to how great our need is. We thank you that you've given us, no matter how great our sin, just a greater Savior. We confess that we're sinners. We confess that Jesus is our Redeemer. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are vindicated over our sin. You're at the right hand of the Father, interceding for your people now. Help us see how ugly our sin really is, that we would turn from it, and also see how abundant your grace really is, and that we'd rejoice in it. In new ways this week, for the glory of Christ's name we pray. Amen.